Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. If it's May, it feels like summer is on its way, finally. And we get to be in the garden this morning. Is it too much to say? I know you've got veg boxes down at the bottom of the garden. Have you got things planned for this year? Yeah, well, I'd probably do what I usually do is get some salad leaves in. You know, those ones you can pop out with your scissors and snip some off and by the next week they've grown back again. Do you know the thing that really is scary though is how quickly when you snip it you basically have to rinse it and serve it straight away and if you don't it's really not very nice by the next day. Whereas those bags of salad you get from the supermarket <laughs> stay in the bag for weeks and seem fine. It makes you wonder. Well, you can tell out there we are not your most sharp gardeners, but we love a garden. And mostly I love a garden because I love to cook. Herbs, that's the thing we both do quite well, isn't it? But they basically look after themselves. But <laughs> No, they're really hard work, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> you have herb pots in your windowsill the same as me. And I love the summer when they're, you know, they're in full greenery and you, you smell them as you sort of brush past them yeah. um, or touch and, them. And dinner is just a bunch of snipped herbs run through some pasta. So for sure, I have planned someday in my dotage, I will have a garden that will just be herbs and then I can go out and just snip what I need for dinner. But that's the plan for some other decade for sure. Should we get started on the stories in the poem for this week? Yeah, let's do that. We've got a lovely story from Kath Barton, There Were Always Roses, and an Edward Thomas poem that Kath picked out today. There were always roses. It's hard work pushing the wheelchair. What with the gravel and mother's weight? I stop and lift her foot back onto its rest, but the chair jolts as she shifts, and for a dreadful minute, I think she's going over. Break next time, Nigel, I say to myself before she does. Not that she's likely to anymore. Grunts and exclamations are mostly what I get from her now. There's no shade in this part of the garden, and sweat's running into my eyes already. I pull out my handkerchief, but she's agitating. Not far to the tea room, mother, I say, though I have no idea where it is. The place is a maze, and the map they gave me with the tickets is tiny. I can't see it properly without my spectacles, and if I stop again, I'll only get hotter and mother more fractious. We press on. I'm beginning to think it was a bad idea to bring her out. I say beginning... I've been thinking so for the past hour. Getting her from the car park to the entrance took a Herculean effort. Wheelchairs available for all who need them, the advertisement had said. Advance booking not required. Sounded ideal. Making arrangements in advance with mother is impossible, what with the unpredictability of her bowels, to say nothing of whether she'll decide she's going to die on any particular day, so she'll say there's no point in getting out of bed. Anyway, today she cooperated said it would be all right to go out. I'm past expecting any thank yous. We get to the car park, and it's half full already, but never mind. I have confidence in the advertisement. Goodness knows why after all the disappointments I've had. I leave her strapped in while I look for a wheelchair. There are no wheelchairs. There's a sign with an arrow. This way to the garden, it says. 500 meters. Wheelchairs available at the garden gate. 500 meters? 
I do a calculation in my head. Eight kilometers is five miles, so 500 meters is, I can't work it out exactly, but far enough and definitely too far with my mother. But we're here, and I'm not turning back now. I maneuver her out of the car. Then I remember the shooting stick. Hold on a mo, I say, and leave her clinging to the car door, swaying as I dash round to the boot. Right, I say, take my arm. And for once, she's compliant. Off we step, by painful step. And that's mine I'm talking about. My varicose veins give me hell in this weather. Not that I complain. Who am I going to complain to apart from mother, and what's the point of that? Thank goodness for the shooting stick is all I can say. Gives us time to regroup along the way. Isn't that what people say these days? There's another arrow. This way to the tea room. Told you, I say, we'll be there in a jiffy. Tea and scones. Mother twists her head, and there's an expression on her face which is very nearly a smile, though it could be wind. There's no one else in this part of the garden, and I can hear the swish of swifts and the clinking of teacups beyond the box hedge. Perhaps the day out wasn't such a bad idea after all. I push the wheelchair through an archway, and it's then that I feel it, like a blow to my chest. For a minute, I think, this is it. I'm having a heart attack. But I don't fall down. I stand there, pulling on the brake of the wheelchair as the past rushes up at me and I'm on the other side of the swimming pool, looking for bodies. Breathe, Nigel, I say to myself. Just breathe. Should we stop there? Yeah. There's a lot to try and figure out in this beginning of the story. And that last paragraph you just read there just came from nowhere. I was not expecting it at all. Mm-mm. I thought tea and scones were coming next. I mean, for me, 500 meters is a long way to walk with someone who's not walking very well, right? What do we make of him? I'm not sure. You know, I kind of swing so far in this part. I feel sorry for him and I'm not sure about him. I think he's got quite a wicked sense of humor. And, and I like that. I think he probably needs that. It sounds like he has a relatively isolated existence. It doesn't feel like he's just taken his mother out for a day from somewhere where she lives or somewhere where she's looked after. It feels like he is her carer. And when he says, what's the point of complaining? There's no one to complain to apart from mother. And there's no point in that. I think we get a real insight into what his life is like at the moment. Yeah, that line really stuck out at me too. It felt like well, it's maybe an explanation, not just that he's the carer, but that he's lonely. And the idea that, you know, the speech in this is really him speaking to himself. You know, there's very little of him actually trying to communicate to her. He's talking to himself a lot in a way that someone who doesn't have much company might do. But the paragraph where he talks about making the arrangements for going out for the day, and he talks about the unpredictability of her bowels and to say nothing whether she'll decide she's going to die on any particular day, for me has a touch of humour and a touch of sort of self-deprecation about it, which I think endears him to me. It feels a bit resigned, like he's just trying to make the best of a situation and he just can't predict and he can't control. And it's a bit like the weather, you know, is it sunny? Okay, well, let's go. But you're not really in control of it. So she feels like he's not able to manage her and he just has to go along with it. I really recognize that um, frustration at there not being wheelchairs when he talks about previous disappointments. I, as you know, Marjorie, I had fairly serious knee surgery a couple of years ago that left me on crutches. And it's really the first time I've had to contend with such a restricted sense of my own mobility. And even though it was only, I knew it was a temporary situation and that, you know, it would pass. 
I was taken aback at how difficult it was to go anywhere. And it really gave me a different perspective on things. And I don't think it really settles with you until you find yourself in that situation. And that little line of all the disappointments took me back to my sort of attempts to be brave and get up and get out and (laughs) do something just to be frustrated at various points along the way where it just became too much and ended up going home of having my mobility restricted. And I remember even being with you in that time and when we would get to a place with all the effort that it took to get to a place and sometimes the seating wouldn't be suitable, you know, you're sore leg would be in a runway of traffic you know that just wasn't okay because if it got knocked it would be um, in danger so I remember you know that it was just all the effort sometimes to get to a place and find that you couldn't do it anyway and it took me back to days of having a friend you know who you and I used to take out who was disabled at the time and then getting to places and finding you couldn't get into them or you know there wasn't a lift even though it said that there was a lift and it's a bit like this story you know or that the, the they didn't have accessible loos even though they said they had or all those sorts of things you know that you had done all the homework and checked it out and then got there absolutely sure it was going to be okay for this friend so that they could have a day out and then to be disappointed at the end was a real shock and as you say it reminds you because we take our own kind of ability for granted for sure so I think for Nigel living with someone who has those restrictions will absolutely restrict his own life as well and it's exactly what's happened here right he's gotten there and there's there are no wheelchairs um at least where they said they would be the idea that you would have a wheelchair not in the car park is hilarious really because who's going to use them But it sounds like he's gotten his hands on one by the time we've gotten to this bit in the story. So we keep reading and figure out. I mean, I don't. I want. I want to chat about that last paragraph, but I feel like I don't know. I don't know why he's kind of had the wind blown out of him. And I something about the swimming pool and looking for bodies. I don't know that we can make any sense of that without any with a little more information. But he definitely seems to be having some sort of, if not panic attack, certainly you know anxiety as he's telling himself to breathe. Shall I read the next bit and see if we get any more information? Please, could you move forward? There are people behind us. I'm aware of their bulk. Are you okay, dear? Says one, peering at me, getting closer than I like. I pull out my handkerchief again and tell her it's only the sweat trickling into my eyes. If we could get past then, lovely, she says. The tea room closes in half an hour. That shakes me firmly back into the present. I release the brake on the wheelchair and Mother jolts awake. Where are we? She calls out in a clear voice. This is the sunken garden, I say. It was a swimming pool once. Now there are roses. Can you smell them? But her moment of lucidity had passed and she slumps in the chair again. In the tea room, we squeeze into a corner table and mother eats the last scone with extra cream. I eat nothing, watch the cream spread round her contented face, and think about the swimming pool again, the shouts, the merriment, the being left out. Of course, there were no bodies in the morning, only a few rose petals. That memory floats up now. Actually, there were always roses, I say, But mother isn't listening. She's busy masticating her scone. I sip my tea. Mother finishes her scone. There are crumbs everywhere, but not a spot of cream. They don't hurry us out of the tea room. I get mother back into the wheelchair. There's no one at the gate. To hell with it, I think. Or perhaps I say it out loud, because mother looks alarmed. I push her in the wheelchair all the way back to the car park. When we get there, 
I realise I've left the shooting stick at the garden entrance, but it feels a small price to pay. Mother's nodding off as soon as I've got her into the car and belted up. As I drive off, I look back at the wheelchair, sitting in the middle of the empty car park. Then I think about what I'll have for my tea. I'm hungry. What with everything that's happened? Hmm. I think there's quite a lot to parse through there. Oh gosh, I don't know if I'm any clearer about what happened in the swimming pool. Yeah, me neither. I feel like something happened in that swimming pool, and that that swimming pool is in that place, right? Yeah, the swimming pool is the swimming pool he's talking about, rather than it being a swimming pool. Yeah, although I'm pretty sure earlier in the story he says he's never been there before. I don't remember that, though, that he's never been there before. But you're probably right, because you do remember details really well. <laughs> I wonder if some he's had some kind of a flash memory, right? Which I had imagined was about a swimming pool that he'd been at in the past. But not that one. But not that one. But then he says it was a swimming pool once. This is a sunken garden. And then he has this flash memory of being beside a pool. He said, because earlier in the story he says, I'm I'm at the side of the swimming pool looking for bodies. Mm. And then later says, of course, there were no bodies in the morning, only a few rose petals. Now, in my head, that's they're playing a game. Because I don't want it to be any darker than that. No. And when he's talking about bodies, he means bodies to play with. Because he talks about the memory of being left out. Yeah, or that the kids are playing a game and you've got to look... Dive to the bottom of the pool. Yeah, or something. Marco Polo, or one of those games where you have to get someone else and you're looking for them. But he was obviously being a kid who was not part of the game, or being left out of it in some way. But then saying, of course, there were no bodies in the morning, only a few rose petals, makes me think that that's a house they lived in, or stayed in at least. Having had that memory of what it was like in the morning again. But you would think you would remember that before you went, you know, that you would... It seems that he didn't remember that until that kind of, there was like a flash of memory. There's nothing in the beginning of the story to say they're going back to a place they used to visit or any of those things. And he does say he doesn't know where the tea room is, which is maybe the beginning. So it's not a place that he's very familiar with, for sure. Unless it's a place he visited as a child and it didn't have a tea room. You know, they knew the owner in some way and stayed there and then now it has a tea room. But you'd think, you know, that would be much more about the thought about how to get there. And if it's somewhere you know or are familiar with, he would have been aware of that in that kind of preamble about getting there. And it certainly wouldn't have taken him by such surprise as he turned the corner, right? Yeah, I think it must be a similar place he's remembering or a similar pool. Or maybe he's read one of these little markers that says it was a swimming pool once. But then why would he say, actually, there were always roses? That for me, that feels like, you know, a memory of this place. He is saying, oh, it was a swimming pool, but now there are roses. And then he has this memory of there being rose petals in, in the morning, but no other children. And saying, actually, there were roses. There were always roses there. I think you're right. I think that sort of grounds us in the fact that it's the same place. It's a funny old um, story, but I, I don't know if you ever get that kind of deja vu feeling like, oh, I've been here, but I don't know. I don't have such strong memories as that, but I'll definitely have places that feel like they remind me of something or... Yeah, although I would say I, was, I would get more of those younger. I would say it's not something now so much. 
I mean, I wonder too if it's because I didn't grow up here, so I know that I've never, you know, I only moved to Scotland in the, sort of 15 years ago, so I'm absolutely sure when I'm going to a National Trust property that I've never set foot in it before. In a way that someone who'd lived here and like you went to things as a kid, you might have been there. And it doesn't really seem to be about the mother at all, right? You know, this is his experience, really. He's taking her to the garden center to give her tea and scones, but actually it's a kind of walk down memory lane for him. And it doesn't feel like it's a positive one necessarily. What do you think? Definitely. And and I think that sense that you identified in the first couple of paragraphs that he's not really speaking to her or massively interacting with her comes through really strongly in the second half as well. He seems to be very caught up in himself and almost just observing his mother rather than conversing or interacting or, you know, being there with her. Well, if she's a person who isn't listening because she's chewing her scone, it makes me think she's, you know, not completely with it. Yeah, because we hear that she loses her moment of lucidity. And the moment of lucidity is just saying, where are we? That's all. She's not having any of these memories. Yeah, it does feel like he's trapped, you know, in lots of ways of in his own head and his own conversations with himself. Yeah, maybe because at the beginning of the story, we hear this is an odd time out for him. He's actually physically trapped as well with her. I don't know. I get the feeling that this is a really a big day out for him too. And he doesn't get a scone, which I think made me disproportionately sad for him. (laughs) (laughs) That just shows how much we love scones. You know, it does make me feel that there is a kindness to him, even though we don't see him massively interacting with his mother. He's brought her out there at sort of some cost to himself. And he's given her the last scone and she has extra cream. And, you know, he's not hurrying her along. Um, You know, there is there is a kindness there, I think. And I'm grateful to the tea room people who don't hurry them out, you know, saying we're closing up now. And maybe that's because, you know, unlike us, they can see this couple, as it were, you know, the son and mum and realize that it's an important time for him to be out. I wonder if you worked at a tea room, what you'd see, you know, whether you'd see people needing those escapes, because tea rooms, for some reason, in gardens feel like a kind of safe place, you know. And I wonder if you'd end up seeing people who just really needed that time and that was their sort of special event or special day out or special hour out even and thinking we'll give him a little space, you know, to have that. Or at least that's what I want for him anyway. And I love that he gets the wheelchair all the way back to the car. Yeah, that felt like a win, didn't it, for him? Yeah, and you forget how far these things are because, you know, at the beginning when we were allowed to go out in the summer, I I took a little riding hut near Tintalan Castle, which I'd never been to near Dunbar, just to have a day or two away to do some riding. And, um, And of course, everything was shut off. So I did the thing, which I probably should not admit to in a public space, but I, it wasn't much of a gate. It was just a car park. So I, I went through it and walked up. And it was so far to the gate to where you would actually pay. You know, it was probably half a mile to the to the actual gate. And I was thinking, how do you get there if you're not able? And then beyond there, there was so much walking to do to get to the castle, which of course I couldn't possibly say that if I actually did that or not. But yeah, it was so far to get to the shore, which is what I was really after. I remember thinking, this is not, these these outings are not for the faint of heart. And I'm a pretty fit person, so I can imagine him thinking, sod it, I'm taking that wheelchair all the way back. But even the idea of a nodding off mother and having to get her out of a wheelchair and put her in, I mean, it's a huge effort, you know, to then get her home and get her settled. And and that's just one day, you know, that's just one outing. It's not a wonder he's starving. So I'm not sure, you know, part of me wants to feel like it's a positive 
thing, an escape. And part of me is exhausted with the effort of it, you know, for him. That makes me think, you know, when we when we talk about outings, for even for our groups and the people we work with, some of whom live with disabilities, you know, we always think of it as a great thing. And it is a great thing. But the effort required, you know, if you think about how many people we work with who are like this, who come out with us in a normal year, think of all that effort expended by other people, by carers to get them there. It's a side of the story we don't often hear, do we? I love this story for that reason, because it makes us makes us realize that a little bit more anyway. And also that those people have internal lives. They are living that we don't often see. And I love the fact that we don't get the answers mm, or all too. the answers towards yeah. the end. And we are left wondering about the swimming pool and wondering what you had for tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, and think giving him credit for not halving that scone, which is what I might have done <laughs> <laughs> and stolen half the cream. Shall we move on to the poem? Yeah, let's do. It's a poem by Edward Thomas, which Kath has picked for us, called Adelstrop. And I'll read it and then we can chat about it. I should say we had some discussion at the beginning about whether it's Adelstrop or Adelstrop, and we decided I was Americanizing it, and it is, in fact, Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name, because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass and meadowsweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Do you know what I found really funny when we came back to read this poem again? When we decided, or when, when Kath had um, picked it out to go with her story, my initial um, recollection had been, oh yeah, that's the one about the train. And in fact, the train is such a minor characters that were in this poem and reading it listen to you reading it it feels much more rooted in nature and in peace and quiet and you know in in the the bare platform and and the train is is such a minimal part it's just interesting that i remembered it for the train i i did too but that's because i think i've been taken there to see that station because of this poem because i love Thomas's poetry. So I thought it was about a train too. And I think in some ways the train is highly instrumental because it gets us to that moment, doesn't it? And it's, it's almost a conversation you and I were having yesterday about how lots of good poems give you a snapshot of a moment. And the details of that moment, for me, bring the reader right, suck us right in. You know, that the hiss and someone clearing their throat places you as the listener or the reader right in that seat in a way that, you know, if we didn't have those details and just said a train pulled up and I heard birdsong, it feels like a storytelling. The very specificity of what he includes allows us to experience it in some ways. Yeah, and after that conversation, I was thinking a lot about what you said about really strong poems and, and poems that stayed with you often were a tiny time frame. And I hadn't really thought about poetry much before in terms of um, appreciating the, the time frame that the poem is written about. And actually, after you said that, I went and picked out a couple of poems that I really, really like. And 
they were all without exception just like sec almost seconds of time so I will be reading with time in the forefront of my mind in future because it was just a really interesting thing yeah I think I mean you can have big narrative poems and you know I'm I'm one who likes to write a narrative poem but I think in we go back to this over and over again in this podcast I think if you give people a snapshot of what something and you can tell a bit of a story through a moment, if you leave enough, it gives you enough then to decide what's happening around it. There's something about me as a reader that wants to fill in, you know, why he's on that train, where he's going and all the things around it. Because what we do, I think, I think instinctively is we fill in our own stories around it. Because if you're telling too much of a story, you know, your reader wants the whole story, just a bit like the story we were reading, you know, we want the whole story. But when there are gaps, which inevitably happen if you're just showing us a snapshot, your reader sucks in and then becomes that story in a way. There's some kind of transformation for me that happens. And it's the details that really do that. Because often it's little, little things that tell us the story, right? Yeah, and, and I think as well for me that confidence that Thomas has in his reader to be able to do that is appealing. You know, he, he obviously trusts his reader to take that journey. He doesn't spoon feed you the details. He doesn't, you know, fill in all the gaps for you. I guess he probably takes the view, if you don't get it, then tough, but if you do, then good. <laughs> yeah, and I think good writing does that. You know, we were laughing yesterday about your instinct as a writer is often to tell, you know, to tell a story and then tell the reader what you were trying to tell them. <laughs> and the work in writing is so often, I think, going back to cut out that last bit so that you have confidence in your reader. Because the instinct is just, if you have something you want to say about a situation, you want to be sure that they got it, you know, but actually the best thing to do is to leave it off and let them fill it in, in the way that they need to. And I think that's, that's why poems last, you know, because you know, I might have read this 20 years ago and thought it was about a journey. And now I think it's about taking that moment and not being frustrated about why is the train stopped? Where are we going? What's looking at my watch, working out how we're going to be delayed, you know, all those sort of things that I might do. Um, now I think, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I get a moment, I've got to stop in that moment and, and pay attention. When the sun shines through the window, as it is doing right this very minute, you know, I need to take a moment to even 30 seconds just to pay attention to the feeling of the sun on my skin or whatever it is. Whereas 20 years ago, it meant something different to me. But I think if he'd spelled more out, if he'd made it about the journey or been more clear about what he meant, it would have ruined that kind of longevity of the poem for me. I love the expansiveness of the final stanza as well. So exactly what you're describing, just taking that minute to be listening to the blackbird and to be really, really focused on the blackbird's singing that is sitting close by him. But then suddenly you're taken on a second journey where you're just thrown out and made to feel part of the universe in a way. You know, you're sitting on a bench in a station listening to a blackbird, but then he takes you right out through Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire, and he doesn't need to say it, but my mind continues to go further and further, you know, beyond England, across the sea, you know, to think about different birds in different places. It makes me think of that gorgeous Morgan poem with the map of Britain all made up of little tiny words, and the words are all the names of the species of birds that, that are from those places or heard in those places. But also, you know, for me, the best poems are the ones that open a door at the end. Best stories are like that too. They're frustrating because you want them to be tied up nicely with a bow. 
But often I think if you give your, yeah, your reader, or as a reader, if you're given a door that opens and suddenly you get to decide which way to go, it's the best kind of poem. And here he does that like, like a master, really. Like he does in all of his poems, but this one's a really, as you say, a masterful way of letting the mind go. And you choose where you're going to take it, which is lovely. Yeah, really lovely. And you all can't see it, although you'll be able to see it on our website if you click through openbookreading.com and look at the un, look at the Unbound podcasts. And the materials will be in the newsletter as well. The form of it is almost like a lovely little train or like a, there's four stanzas of four lines. And the first line is, is a normal line and the next three are indented. So it feels like motion. It feels like a train moving in some ways, which I really like. It feels like it matches or at least I mean, in this case, matches or contrasts with the theme of stopping, which I like very much too. The one line that I just couldn't quite get my head around and couldn't sort of pin down what I thought about it was in the third stanza, the third line, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. Just what is a whit for a start? Is it a different bird? I thought it was just um, a way of saying no more less still and lonely, fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. Um, yeah, for me, it means no more, less lonely and, and still. So that although he can see willows and willow herb and grass and meadowsweet and haycocks, they're all dry and they're mo- not moving. There's nothing moving. And it's like still and lonely in the same way that the high clouds aren't moving. He can't see them move. So for me, it feels like, a, like a, everything he's looking at is a snapshot. Almost a photograph, he's almost creating a photograph. Then there's a blackbird, and that's the motion. You can't see any motion, but you can hear change. You can hear something in the distance that signals movement or change. I mean, of course, a bird itself is signaling movement and flight, which is a contrast to the train having stopped dead without any explanation. Um, And there's very little sound, right? There's steam hissing, someone clearing the throat, but there's nothing else happening. Nobody's moving. Nobody's walking up and down the platform. He can see nothing change. It's interesting that the only only movement in the poem is sound, including the blackbird at the end. So yeah, so for me, he's explaining that he can't see anything change, which must be frustrating if you're on a train because you're intending to go somewhere. (laughs) And it's a lovely image that the sound that he hears when everything goes quiet is a blackbird kind of singing you out or singing the way out of this stillness or this lack of motion. It feels too like that um, poem that we read once by John Glenday. I think it was in our pilot podcast about sending birds out from the ark. And I think it was ravens then that he would send two ravens out to fly together. But that idea that when you're still or stuck, you can send a bird out. So it reminds me of that image of a bird being the motion, the bird going ahead in some ways, showing you the way out. And a real sense of wondering what happens next in this poem for me. You know, does the, does the journey carry on or is he stuck there listening to the bird song for a few more hours or does he get off the train? I always wondered. Yeah, maybe. I mean, for me, this, maybe it's because I've just been thinking about that John Glenday poem, but for me, the bird signals motion and sort of going ahead to where he's going. And maybe he's going through Oxfordshire, through into Gloucestershire, I don't know. But for me, it, it signals to the reader that there will be motion coming, you know, and that he's got a way out. That's because I'm optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take your optimism and, and, and uh, go with it. But it's another one of those poems that when you first pick it up and, you know, you see the 16 lines and you think, 
okay, this is quite straightforward. But as soon as you start to um, spend a little bit of time with the poem and let it rattle around your head a bit, um, it throws up a whole load of things to think about. Yeah, in the way of best, of the best kinds of poems, if you dig into them, there's always more, more to be found. And it seems simple, which is what a lot of poets aspire to. I remember saying to John Glenday once, you know, we love your poems at Open Book because they're simple. And then realizing later that that could have been a terrible thing to say. You know, I didn't know him well at the time. And then emailing him to say, I'm really sorry I called your poem simple. And he replied saying, it's the highest honor you could give me. I spend all my days trying to make my poems more and more simple. Um... But by that I meant, you know, they, they appear on, like not scary. They don't contain anything that seems scary, but there's so much depth there when you choose to dig into them. So I think this is another great example of a poem like that. Thank you, Kath, for your lovely story and for your great pick of poem uh, to go along with it. I think that's all from us today at Open Book in the month of May. Thanks so much for having us in your ears. You can find all the materials we've been talking about today on our website at openbookreading.com. And we hope you'll join us again in June when we'll be talking about another piece of new writing for us and a matched poem. Bye for now.